Today, I'm gonna be sharing with you out of the book of Galatians, and so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right there in front of you in the pews, and if you don't have one at home, take that Bible home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Um, We're anxious to give everyone a Bible that they can have at home and and study God's word together with, so we invite you to to do that. Again, Galatians uh, chapter one, and we're gonna start with verse 10. Galatians chapter one, with verse, starting with verse 10, and we'll also be up there on the screen for you. <clears throat> this is the New International Version. It says this, I, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. About eight or nine years ago, I got into a car accident, and it was my fault. There were four lanes of traffic. I was trying to turn left and I looked both ways. I thought I was in the clear and I started heading out and I actually didn't see a car that was coming. And even though this other person had put on their brakes, could not stop in time and slammed into the side of the car. We were okay, but I saw in my mirror that the person who ran into us was not okay, grasping at his chest. And so, When the police officer came, he actually, the police officer had seen the whole thing happen, rushed over, I told the officer about this other person and he rushed over there to help. As far as my memory of this is of of the moment, don't remember uh, an ambulance coming or anything, so was very relieved that there weren't any serious injuries as a result of my mistake in, in this accident. And so a few months went by, sort of went out of our minds, going on with life as usual, and I was reminded of this accident by a packet of papers that came to me in the mail, and after reading it, realizing that I was being sued for my mistake. Now, this had never happened to me before. I don't know the legal process. I don't know a lot about a lot of things. And so panic just 
sort of came over me when I'm reading that we are being sued by this individual and his law firm. So some people had advised me, contact my insurance uh, agent, and they uh, assigned a lawyer to me and to my wife Amanda, and we we came in for, I think it was a deposition, I don't know the language, but we were supposed to just there, be there and tell our story of what was to be happening. A court person was going to be recording everything, and our lawyer had just said that the other person's lawyer would be there present while we tell our side of the story. It shouldn't take very long, you should be out of there, and then I'll take it from there, is what our lawyer had told us. I had asked him, is this other gentleman, is he, is he going to be there? And he said, oh, that's very rare. I, I would not anticipate that one bit. Now, mind you, this is a couple months after the actual accident. We walk into the room, and not only is this individual there, he's wearing a neck brace. His lawyer was quite young. Um, I'm guessing he just got, just had passed the bar exam. He was uh, very young and very ambitious. And so here I was told by my lawyer what to expect, that it was just going to be very straightforward, that I'd come and just tell my side of the story and we'd be done with it. All of that suddenly turned around and became an inquisition from this ambitious lawyer who was trying to find something else, probably trying to squeeze more money out of the deal. And suddenly my character was under attack. And suddenly, my ability to drive was being questioned. Suddenly, I became the target. And it didn't feel good. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't feel good when suddenly I'm the one that, that's under the microscope. Well, in this series, this is the second week of our series called Out of Control. And in this series, we're talking about how we generally are out of control. Sometimes we think we're in control, but really there are lots of things in this world and in life that we can't control. And a lot of times we, do, we respond in one of two ways. We either get overwhelmed and we're filled with fear and anxiety, or we try to gain control and grasp control and sometimes furiously trying to grasp control of things that we're just never gonna control. And so Pastor Steve, last week as he kicked things off, he talked about how our future and how we really can't control our future, but we like to try to control the future. And sometimes we, have, we struggle in, in gaining a grasp and a grip on our future. And the call out of this series each week will be handing over that thing, handing over that thing that we're trying to control, handing it over into the hands of God. And so today, I'd like to talk about reputation in that regard. Reputation. These are the thoughts and the opinions and the judgments of other people that by and large we can't control, but boy, do we try. Or boy, do we really worry about that. And the worry and the fear of what others would think and the judgments that other people would make many times guides and directs and drives the decisions that we make the thoughts that we have, the life that we lead, this dysfunction is called people-pleasing. And some of you know this logically, and some of you know this experientially. And let me tell you, this is going to be more of a confessional message to all of you as someone who sometimes worries way too much about what I think other people might be thinking and judging 
and having an opinion about. We know that people-pleasing, our brains understand for the most part that when I say people-pleasing, that it's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. It's something that we should not do or we should remove ourselves from. Basic common sense wisdom would, would say this. How many of you uh, as children learned about the Aesop's fables? Any of you remember Aesop's fables? In elementary, we learned some of those stories. These were short stories, uh, children's stories for the most part, meant to teach wisdom or some sort of moral, and they come from long ago. They were probably first written or they started five, maybe 600 years before Jesus even came on the earth. So very old and passed through oral tradition from one generation to the next. One of those stories was about a miller and his son and his donkey. Now, if you look this up on the internet, you're going to find the old English version of donkey, which is a three-letter word that I won't repeat in church. And Miller, this Miller and his son, they fall on hard times, and they need some money in their pockets, and so they make the tough decision that they are going to sell their donkey in the town so that they can have some money. And so they gather everything up, they wait, make for the long journey into the town, and suddenly people begin along the roadside making fun of them. Huh, look at these fools. Here they have this donkey, and the whole purpose for the donkey is to carry them or carry something, and they're just walking this donkey. They did not load up the donkey because they thought, well, if we're going to sell this thing, we need, it needs to appear strong and capable, and we don't want to wear the thing out when we make our way to the town. And so we're just going to walk beside it. Well, after the first uh, group ridiculing them, they made some adjustments. And they said, well, okay, son, why don't you get up there on the donkey and ride the donkey so we don't have to be made fun of? So they go a little bit along, and, and then another crowd gathers along the roadside and begins making fun of them again and says, oh, you disrespectful son, are you going to make your old father walk alongside this whole journey to the town? What a terrible son. The son said, well, I don't want... I don't want this kind of treatment. we got to make a change. And so the father gets up on there. A little bit further down the road, another crowd gathers and makes fun of them and says, oh, you lazy father. You're going to let this poor lad walk all this way? Well, you could be harming his future. He said, well, I don't want that. So the only thing they could think of to avoid all of this controversy is to bind the legs of the donkey onto a pole and to carry the donkey into town. Well, as, as the story goes, they reach the town, they cross over a bridge, and the crowd begins to gather around. Look at these poor fools. They're carrying their own donkey on, on a pole. How silly is this? And they gather, crowds gather so closely that the donkey freaks out. That's my own language. This is not in Aesop's fables. Freaks out, kicks everywhere, and suddenly they lose the donkey over the bridge, and they lose their donkey. And the moral of the story at this end is this. By trying to please everybody, he had pleased nobody and lost his <clears throat> donkey besides. Logically, we get this. We understand the detrimental effects of people pleasing and many of us have lived it. Some of us have tired ourselves out, burnt ourselves out trying to please other people and we realize this is never going to happen. And we lose our sense of ourselves in the process. So why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep falling into the trappings of people pleasing? Some of you 
Don't know when you're people-pleasing, when it begins to happen, because it starts with a very innocent amount of caring. You're a caring person. And you care so much, and you care so much, and finally you realize that there's no more left of you to care. And you get burned out. Some of you might be conflict avoiders. That what you really want is peace and harmony. And you can think of all the things that other people would have against you, and you try to avoid all of those different things. And you end up being driven by trying to achieve the approval of other people. So Paul, in the book of Galatians, this is the guy who wrote, he's the leader of the church, churches throughout the region of Galatia. He is writing a letter to the Galatians and right out of the bat is defending himself against an accusation. And the accusation was that he was a people pleaser. See, what was happening in that region was that there was a great deal of economic growth and opportunity. Entrepreneurs of all sorts were popping up and people were becoming wealthy from different means in the economy. But there was also also a social commerce that was happening in that day that people were flocking to philosophers and gurus of the day that had a perceived wisdom. And this was such a popular thing. There was a, a, an area in, the, in Greek towns called the Agora where all these gurus and philosophers would gather and they would speak their wisdom and people would be in awe of them and they would follow them. And the best of the best began to have a business relationship with the, the wealthy in the area because they thought, well, this guy has a lot of Twitter followers, so I'm going to tie my reputation and my business to this fellow and it's going to be good for business. And the rest of the people in society were thinking, wow, these guys are spouting off some wisdom and they're getting paid for it. This is pretty good. And so already right out of the bat, there was this fierce competition amongst these wise guys. They were called the sophists. And I say wise guys because sophist comes from the Greek word sophia, which means wisdom. And the whole goal was to gain a following through their wisdom and through their eloquent speech. Paul was being accused of this. Paul was being accused of some of the sophists that really didn't have a lot of wisdom, but they thought, if I can figure out just what the people, what the masses of people really want to hear, then I'll tickle their ears with with my speech and my eloquent way of saying it, and then I will have the following, and the benefactors will want to fund my efforts. Paul was accused primarily from a group of opponents that came from the original uh, Christian group, the the gathering of Christians. When I say Christians, they weren't called Christians originally, they were called followers of the way, which was simply the way of Jesus. See, they were really seen as a sect of Judaism. The original followers of Jesus were all Jewish. So there was no change in the way they practiced their faith. They carried on with all the usual practices of faith in Judaism. They just happened to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And that was the original church. That was the original culture of the church, the sense of expectations, the the, the rules and, and the practices that went with that. Well, something happened. The church began to grow and expand and all of these others began to join, the Gentiles. And mostly the Gentiles were saying, okay, well, I don't mind like a lot of these practices, but I got a problem. And these were the men saying this. I've got a problem because you're saying that I need to 
to, in order to follow Jesus and have faith in, in Jesus that, that I need to do what, what all of you have done when you were younger. And that is to, to be circumcised. And I, I don't know if that's what God's calling me to do. So they had this crisis and they're trying to figure out is, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian? Paul and Peter in Jerusalem, and you can read this in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Peter hashed it out. Should we expect the Gentiles to also be circumcised? And Paul won them over and said, look, circumcision's not, it's not about the act, it's about what's happening in our hearts. And so Peter agreed, and they carried on in ministry, but some people didn't like the decision. And there were a group of people, opponents of Paul, that followed him wherever he went throughout the region. He would st- Paul would start up a church, these people would follow, and they'd try to discredit Paul and dismantle everything that he had done. And the way that they did that is that they, they pointed to the fact that there were these people pleasers out there, the sophists, and they would say, Paul is doing the exact same thing. We know you don't want to be circumcised, but they're just telling you what you want to hear. He's just telling you what you want to hear and trying to, dis- and trying to discredit everything that Paul was doing. And so Paul comes to the defense of himself right off the bat, and he says this in verse 10. He said, am I now... Seeking human approval? Or am I, or God's approval? Am I trying to please people? And the rhetorical question is assumed, which is, no. No, I am not. Research says that we have all but three seconds in the midst of a first impression to get it right. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? On the whole, when we meet someone for the very first time, people, and we do this, but we're also subjected to this, people make uh, quick judgments, snap judgments about other people within the first three seconds. And they make those judgments based off of appearance, based off of how people talk, based on how, uh, you know, what they say, all of these different things. Only three seconds. That is a lot of pressure, Right? And think about all the things that could go wrong in the midst of those three seconds. What if you're not on your best day? What if your hair's all frazzled? What if you forgot to brush your teeth? Don't do that. What if, what if you're in a bad mood? What if things have happened during the course of that day that lead up to this moment of this first impression? Now we think about this with like a job interview, right? because we see the importance of that first impression, but we, this first impression, this pressure-cooked first impression happens when we meet anybody, and we make snack judgments about all of that, and that's just with us. Think about the other person, the judger. What kind of day are they going through? Are they looking at you through the lens of what happened to them during that day? Think of all the misunderstandings, false impressions, Everything that can be lost in the midst of those three seconds. Now that's, a, that's an average, but on the whole, a first impression is really pressure cooked into this moment where we have to get all of this right. And so we worry about what that might be. There's so much that, could go, that goes into this impression. There's so much that goes into our reputation that it really, in this world, is a very chaotic thing. It could be, the pers- it could be one person's 
bad day or the way they look or the, or the other person's bad day or, or what they're going through that can add to this sense of reputation. How many times have you just said, oh no, I didn't mean to say it that way. Oh my goodness, they got the wrong impression of me. Have you said this to yourself? This happens all day and it's a chaotic world and it's a world filled with a lot of ungrace. Don't you wish we had a little bit more grace in every interaction we have with everybody? Don't you wish that, that we could get a lot of do-overs when it comes to meeting new people, interacting with people? Don't you wish that you could have some people just wipe from the record the way you said it in that way at that time in the hopes that someone would have a better first impression, don't you feel like sometimes that you're not really truly known? That people really aren't able to grasp that, that picture of who you really are because we just had a hard time letting that come out for people? It's a chaotic environment when it comes to our reputation and it's filled with a whole lot of ungrace. But here's what happens. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all the ungrace that exists out there, when we busy our minds with worrying and concerning ourselves with those thoughts or opinions or judgments, and we allow that to be the driving force for how we live our life, the things that we do, the things that we think, if we allow that to take control, and you know this, we just invite that same chaos into, in, into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds, into our homes, we allow, we invite the chaos of ungrace to come in. When we seek the approval of people. And so, Paul offers something right there in verse 10. It's, it's a short thing, but it, it's, it's loaded with meaning. He says in verse 10, after he asks the question, am I here to, to please Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval or am I trying to please people? And then he says, if I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And there's an implication here. The implication is not that if a person is not a servant of Christ that they suddenly would be free to do what they want or to, to live a life of freedom. No. You see, the Bible teaches us that we're all slaves to something. That there's all kinds of influences and voices that guide and direct us to tell us what to do. We're all slaves to something. It could be our fears. It could be our anxieties. It could be our, 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 um, our fear of, our, of a false reputation. We're all slaves to something. The choice and the implication that, that Paul is making in this statement is a question. So who... Who are we going to be slaves to? This word doulos, it's servant or, or slave. Who are we going to be slaves to? Because it's going to be slaves to something. Who is it going to be? Who is in the driver's seat? And some of us struggle with that sense of commitment and that sense of surrender. It's hard to, to let go of these things. But that, that's what this series is all about. Could be a variety of different topics, but how can we let it go and give it to God, give God the control? And when we do, 
I wonder if we think or ask ourselves, so what kind of God am I handing this over to? With my reputation, what kind of God am I handing my reputation to? What kind of God is this that I'm handing my life over to? How does God respond to this? So Paul goes into his story and begins to tell his story. And it's really clever the way Paul does it too because he talks about how, like, hey, you guys know my former life. I was advancing in the institution of religion that my opponents are saying you need to do in order to be a faithful person. I was advancing in that. And guess what? That was the people-pleasing. I was doing all of that. I was zealous. I was advancing in it. I was doing better than the people around me. And I rose up in the ranks. But in so doing, he was opposing the very will and the very purposes of God. And then he says this, but, in verse 15, but, when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. You catch this? In a world chock full of judgments, snap judgments, and, and false opinions that are pressure cooked into very small opportunities for us to be actually known. We live in a world that's filled with ungrace. But when we hand over our reputation, when we hand over our lives to God, we, God responds with grace. He lavishes us with grace. We sometimes misunderstand or maybe have an incomplete idea of what grace really is. So a lot of times we talk about grace in more of a legal standing. And that's very true, but, but somewhat incomplete. A lot of times we think of grace as God wiping the slate clean, the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of our unrighteousness. And that's very true. But grace is much bigger than that. Grace is really about the gap between an almighty, perfect God being closed between an almighty, perfect God and a fallen and broken humanity. How are we going to have communion with a God such as that? It is through grace. And what that means is that we are no longer bound we are no longer held hostage. We are no longer in bondage to the sin that leads to decay and the sin that leads to death. We are, our slate is wiped clean, but then through grace, we also are able to travel closer to God. We also are able to be molded and shaped into something that looks more like Jesus. And so we don't have to sit there in this relationship with God where we make a mistake and we seek God's grace and we make a mistake and we seek God's grace. Grace does not come to us through sin but it is a gift of God that propels us and drives us into something better. In Romans chapter six, Paul explains this because there was this impression that people had about grace that it was dependent upon sin. And so if I sin, then I, need, I get more grace. Then if I sin, then I get, get more grace. And some of you know this line in, in Romans chapter six, verse one. He says, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. And later he, he drives home his point in, in verse 13 
in Romans chapter 6, he says, no longer present, present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under, there's that word, under grace. Grace is not just the wiping of the slate clean so that we can start fresh again. Grace is what propels and drives us into something more that looks like Jesus. And so it is through grace and it's under grace that as we give ourselves over to God, we don't have to worry about our reputation because we stand under that grace that not only wipes the slate clean, but drives us and propels us into the ways, into the full life of God. People pleasing will invite the chaos of this world into our hearts and our minds and our lives, but surrendering ourselves to God places us in this pool of grace that envelops us, that we swim in, that we bask in, that we live in. And I wonder, for those of us people pleasers, if instead of just saying, okay, well, I, I gotta stop pleasing people. Mind over matter. I, need, I just need to stop pleasing people. I need to start living for God. That's just what I'm gonna decide to do. You can try. You can try. But I wonder if there's something more tangible that we could do. I'm wondering if we commit ourselves to a life immersed in grace, if the whole people-pleasing thing will just sort of melt away. I wonder if we live in, immersed in a life of grace, the grace that extends to all those around us, but the grace that, ex that, we, that we give to ourselves if we immerse ourselves in that grace, I wonder if the whole people-pleasing thing will just sort of melt away and won't matter anymore because we have that sense of joy and assurance, not of what people think or do, but, but, but what God has done and what God continues to do through his grace. And here's the remarkable thing because uh, after Paul tells his story about how he was trying to destroy Christ's church, and how God redeemed him through grace and set him into this, this ministry, he adds in this little line in verse 24 in Galatians 1, it says this, and they glorified God because of me. There's a reputation being given out now. But it's not my reputation. People are seeing God through me. Like a, a light that's reflected into the eyesight of someone else. People see God through me. That is amazing and impossible if not for the grace of God that not only forgives me and forgives you, but drives you and propels you into something that looks more like Jesus. So I want to ask, what does it look like to immerse our lives in grace? What does it look like to put aside 
a life of ungrace that we find in the world all the time and to live according and to live within the full grace of God. One of my favorite authors is Philip Yancey and he writes a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he goes, teases out the idea of of grace and he tells a story in the midst of this uh, book that was just really profound. It's, a, it's actually a famous story, some of you might know it, uh, called B- uh, Babette's Feast. And the story goes like this, I'll try to convey it very quickly so you get the idea, that there were two women, two pastor's daughters that lived in a small village where their father was like the community pastor, and they were very strict and very rigid, and you know, they held to their beliefs and their, and their um, strict lines of what's appropriate, unappropriate. They all wore the same clothes and no, no flourishes like colors and different things. And so as to bring them closer to God, they thought that um, they don't want to um, give themselves over to any, the pleasures of, of good tasting food, so they forced themselves to eat this gruel made of boiled bread every single day. That's what they did. Even one of the the daughters had gone away for a time and she became a little romantically involved and um, this young fellow, dashing fellow, wanted to marry this young woman, uh, but she thought that that was just a a flourish that she should resist and so she went back to her home. This this fellow had sort of remarried, he got married to someone else and kind of lived his life and then, strange enough, he sent over this woman named Babette to tend to the two sisters and to keep house and to, to cook for them. And, she, and he added in this letter as he sent Babette over to these two women, was that, oh, and she can cook. She can cook. And these two women were just thrilled. This, oh, this is really great. Here's the recipe for the gruel of boiled bread so that you can make that for us to eat. Babette said nothing to these women And after 12 years, something happened. A friend back in Paris had put her name into the lottery and Babette had won the lottery, like 10,000 francs. And so the women, they become very fond of Babette. They were excited for her, but they were also sad because they would be losing this person that had been doing all this stuff for them. So Babette said, well, As a parting gift, I'd like to put on a banquet feast for you. Would you allow me to just cook whatever I want for you? They were feeling a little guilty to say no, so they agreed to it, and all the townsfolk came in, and Babette spent months preparing for this great banquet feast. And once it happened, the the townsfolk, they were a little guilty. You know, should we be eating this kind of stuff? But then they thought, well, we just can't let it go to waste, and so that little by little they kind of loosened up and they allowed themselves to enjoy this great feast. And afterwards, they came to Babette and expressed their appreciation of how wonderful the feast was and said that they were sorry that she was going to go. And Babette said, well, I'm actually, I think I'm gonna need to stay with you for a little bit longer. And they said, but yeah, but what about the money that you won? She said, well, actually, I kind of spent it all on this feast that I just uh, put on for, for all of you. But don't, don't, don't feel bad. That's actually how a normal meal would cost in the, the cafe that I cooked for in France. And so 
Philip Yancey explains that this is what grace looks like. It is this free gift that comes out of nowhere that no one can, could pay for and that we barely grasp or appreciate the, the gravity the gravity of it. And then Philippians, he takes it a step, step further and he says, How, what, what do we as people that follow Jesus, what, what do we look like? What, what is our reputation? Do we, well, this is what he says. He says, grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. A spiritual nova in our midst exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. Sadly, to a world desperate for this grace, the church sometimes presents one more form of ungrace. Too often, we more resemble the grim folks who gather to eat boiled bread than those who have just partaken of Babette's feast. You see, when we become immersed in the grace of God, God's grace flows out of us and speaks to a world that lives amidst condemnation and judgment in a span of three seconds. A world where people experience a host of ungrace. And so they're left to either worry about what other people are thinking or pretend that they don't care. But the life of God those that have partaken of the great banquet feast that live in the assurance of God's grace, well, they have something. And it points the way to God. And it gives God the glory. So I just want to invite you that if we struggle with approval of people, what does it look like instead of living according to that way? to live immersed in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Holy God, we live in a world of snap judgments misunderstandings and a host of ungrace. Lord, help us to not busy ourselves with people-pleasing, but to surrender our lives to you, basking in your grace that not only pardons our sin, but sets us on a course of, of, of life and of righteousness and of healing and wholeness to the extent that we live full of joy where others take notice and say glory to God. Lord, all of this can only be done and accomplished through your grace, so we submit ourselves to you. We give ourselves over to you and to your grace. Do your work within us. Put aside all fears of the opinions of others and call us through your grace unto yourself a life full of you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus to make possible 
a communion between divine and human that on our own accord would not be possible. Bless us and bless our reputation as we hand it to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So people of God, on this Memorial Sunday, my prayer is that you'd go forth and with each step, feel and experience the grace of God that takes you to himself. Go in his name and in his peace. Amen.